You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right. Good evening, Revolution Church. Hi, guys. Uh, It's a privilege to be up here again tonight, uh, to be able to dive into Scripture with you guys and for your allowing to be up here. Um, I'm very thankful to Dave and to Steve uh, for the opportunities they're giving me to grow and to learn. It's been a tremendous help already, and this is my third sermon, so I appreciate that. Um, As you know, we've been going through a sermon series over the Psalms. I'll be continuing that series tonight, and um, I find the Psalms to be very interesting. Uh, They're engaging and they're fun to read uh, because of their genuineness. So, you know, um, this has been touched on before with Dave talking about this as well, but some of these Psalms are just unapologetically raw, and it's just intriguing in that sense when you get to read them. Um, We see intense emotions on display by its authors. And they can hit so close to home that it's almost as if our own thoughts are on these papers. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, there can be a great wake-up call for us and a great thing to teach us. Um, so I hope that this passage that we're going to engage with tonight, that it would be encouraging, uh, possibly convicting, and that it will allow you to truly see God for who He is. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 111. This will be the text that we are reading from tonight. And uh, to give you some background while you flip through this text, uh, the official author and date uh, that that this psalm was written is kind of unknown. However, there's many that have a good idea, uh, good theories to kind of fill in that gap. Uh, An interesting thing that I found about this psalm is that it's actually um, how it's written. So both Psalm 111 and the chapter behind it, Psalm 112, um, are written as alphabetical acrostic hymns of praise. And so what that means is that uh, as we go through this psalm for every single verse, um, every letter of the, e- of the Hebrew alphabet is used at the beginning of each sentence. Uh, and it goes in a chronological order. So essentially, um, for us in English, the first sentence would start with an A, the second sentence would start with a B, the second, I mean the third C, fourth, all the way down, all the way through the psalm, and it actually does it in 112 as well. So the, the, the fact of how it's written is just interesting. It, the poetic structure of it will kind of guide the flow of the psalm uh, as it leads us into Psalm 112. So now that I have that out of the way, uh, let's go ahead and read this together. As long as the wind doesn't blow my paper out of the way. All right, Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright and in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord and studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let's go ahead and pray. 
Dear Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come up here and, and preach through your word. I ask that what we go through tonight, uh, that it would be a blessing for everyone here. I ask that the Spirit would work in us and that these truths that are found in these pages would penetrate our hearts. Um, I ask that you would push us to, to praise you in a very heartfelt and wholehearted way. Um, I ask that we would chew on these and ponder on these truths for the rest of this week. And ultimately, I ask that this would be glorifying to you. We thank you for this time. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, to start things off, uh, I want to point out that this psalm was actually written uh, to, to make us remember the works of the Lord and to stir our affections to generate a genuine, true praise and wisdom. Um, and I, and if, if you guys like a thesis statement or if you want one, this is mine. You can write it. You don't have to. It's kind of long. But um, my thesis statement for this sermon would be that the works of Yahweh are truly great and are deserving of all of our praise. They are studied and remembered. They are righteous and faithful. And they are trustworthy and upright. And a true fear of the Lord is wise. So starting off in verse 1, we see that um, the author gives us a declaration to praise the Lord. And, and this praise is wholehearted. It is a genuine praise. And we are to follow this example um, as we praise the Lord. He shows us that what we ought to do um, is to give, give him a genuine praise, regardless of the setting and who is around us. And where, whether that's in private or whether we're, we're in public right now in corporate worship. Um, and since this hymn uh, would actually be saying in this time, this is calling everyone in the, in the congregation to actually engage as you're singing this. So many would actually have to sing this together, and the author still shows us that our call for praise should be continual, even after, um, even if we're with few. So for the author of this psalm, this is essentially his main thesis. And we'll see that for the rest of the scriptures that follow this, this is the main point that he's driving to for the rest. The remaining nine verses are all written with this first verse in mind, and they're driving us to one exact point of reference being the praise of the Lord. Now, I want to rest on that for a second and see, um, and just to ask, what is this telling us to do? And obviously, I've said praise about 12 times, and you get that. You know, clearly, we, we are to give praise that's clear, but I think the first sentence is asking us to do something else. And I would venture to say that many of us would actually miss how big this implication is of what we're being asked to do, and that is a full-hearted praise of the Lord. Now, most would probably glance over that. Um, they wouldn't give much, much consideration to it. You know, like, we'll acknowledge it, but we probably won't stop there and kind of ponder on it and chew on it. But I want us to chew on this and kind of ask ourselves, do we truly worship God with our whole heart? And to be honest, you know, I would venture to say that, that we don't. And as I thought about this, I kind of made a list of things that I think that we, that we do that shows that our praise is not as wholehearted as we actually think it is. But that our, much of our praise at times can be very hollowed out, very cold or, or half-hearted um, acts of praise. So, so let me ask you this. Have you or do you ever just run through the motions of church? where you're physically present, but you're not really engaged? Do you ever just say obligatory prayers before you go to eat, but you have no real thankfulness when you do it? Do you ever just give yourself credit 
for accomplishments and you add a little bit of God at the end of it so you can clear your conscience and know that, that you said that? Uh, do, do you profess thanks publicly to the Lord while not really meaning it at heart? Simply reading the words on these screens, singing but not really meaning it in your heart as you do it? Or do we sit in the pews and allow these words to come through one ear and out the other and we're too worried about what's going on for work tomorrow? Now, I don't say these things to be up here and, and point the finger and sound like a legalist, but I say these things to show that I don't think our acts of praise are nearly as heartfelt as we pretend that they are. We are called to have a wholehearted worship of the Lord. Now, this brings us to ask another question as to why. And that's kind of a funny question, why praise the Lord? Um, but luckily, this is where the author is actually taking us for the rest of this, uh, this sermon. And, and this question of why we should have a wholehearted praise is found in verses 2 through 9. Uh, these verses will, will kind of furnish us and answer our question as to why we are supposed to have this type of praise. Um, and before we kind of jump into the rest of this text, um, I want to point out that we can clearly see references in the upcoming sentences to the, of a flashback to Exodus. Um, the Exodus served as a redemption of the people of God in the Old Testament for Israel. And the author of this psalm is actually reflecting back on those events in this psalm, um, knowing and looking forward to the, the coming of the Messiah and the promised land. So in the same way, getting this text to apply to us, where we're not stuck in an Old Testament mindset as, as if we are Israel, for us today we recognize that Christ is our exodus. Um, and we will reflect on the rest of this psalm knowing that our promises and inheritance are even greater than what they had in the Old Testament. So we come to verses 2 and 3. And they read, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Now, take a second to consider the works of the Lord. Um, think back to all the classic Bible stories that, that you've been told as a kid. Uh, think about the creation and the, the fact that the Lord creates out of nothing. From the smallest details to the highest complexity, from, from, a, from a single atom to the expanse of the universe, we see the hand of God in creation. Think about the, the, the promises of a redeemer that we find in Genesis 3 after the fall. Think about Noah and the ark with the flood how he kept Noah and his family safe. Again, like, like I've uh, previously addressed, uh, think of the Exodus. You know, the, the Israelites being freed from their slavery in Egypt. Think about the successive order through time of men that God has used to fulfill his promise for the Messiah to come. And think about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Think about all of his miracles that he did. Think about the apostles that came, and come, that came to establish his church. How God seems to fit everything together perfectly throughout history. And how we're beneficiaries because of that. We still stand in amazement to this day uh, when asked about the works of the Lord. And we could continue this list for the rest of the night, but that's a little bit redundant. Um, but we should see the greatness and understand the great works of the Lord... And this should push us towards praise of God in and of itself. You really don't even, you could, you could praise God through this alone without even getting to the rest of the text. But the author still continues. We see in verse 4, he reads, or he states, 
He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Now the people of Israel, um, they've remembered uh, the works of the Lord and what the Lord has done for them. This remembrance goes from generation to generation as they pass this on. And they reflect on their slavery in Egypt. But do we not also remember the wondrous works of the Lord in our own lives? God uses the work of regeneration and the aiding of the Holy Spirit to show us his works today. And as we read through these scriptures, the Holy Spirit works on our hearts to teach us. He changes our hearts. He goes on to, to, to push us to have genuine obedience and a genuine gratitude for what he's done so that we will actually serve, follow, and obey. And not only has he caused his wondrous works to be remembered by the Holy Spirit in us, but he's also used the scriptures as a medium to make us remember him. God could have just given us, God could have chosen to not give us any revelation, and he would still be justified in the judgment of the wicked because he's written the moral law in every man's heart. God still chose to connect with his creation either way. I mean, anyway. And, and though man, um, he, he used this through man under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, he chose to give us his holy word so that we would know him. He wrote in a language that could be translated and well understood. He has preserved his word through the centuries. The Bible we hold in our hands today that I just preached out of, we have these because for centuries, blood of the martyrs have carried this through so we could have it. So that we too can partake in the remembrance of the works of God. These, I mean, are these not gracious and merciful already? Um, this, is a, this is a great gift to his children. God the Holy Spirit dwells within us to guide us, teach us, convict us, purify us, and make us remember who he is and what he has done. And on top of that, he gives his children his holy word. He uses this, this word in accordance with the spirit inside of us, and we see that the Lord is absolutely worthy of our praise in, in light of that. But still, the author doesn't stop there, and he continues to keep on going. We see in verses 5 and 6, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. So this is, again, a throwback. The, the Lord provides manna for the people while they're in the wilderness. And through His acts of providence, His people were sustained. They were without need. They, they were not malnourished. And He continually provided for His people throughout the times. And what that makes us do then is it makes us ask ourselves, has the Lord not also provided for us? I would venture to say that time and time again, God has provided for his children. And, and those with a reverent fear of him understand this. Think of like the people in the congregation here. Think of the things that you've been through in your life. God has restored us back to health or he's in the process of doing it. He's given us new jobs. Uh, OJ would know. My wife would know. By the grace of God, Matt Knox will know. Um, he's given us financial re resources to get new cars if we need it. He's helped us to find money to pay bills. He sent friends to us in times of depression when we need it, when we need other saints in the faith to suffer well with us. He's given us this church. And most importantly, he's provided Christ for us. 
He provides for His people physically and spiritually. And God has already proven Himself to His people and also to us. So we have seen the hand of God in our lives. We know Him to be true. And just how Israel obtained their inheritance, we too will obtain, obtain an even greater inheritance through Christ. A new heaven, a new earth, an eternity with the holiest of holies, where there's no sorrow, no guilt, no shame, no pain. Total restoration of all of God's creation. Surely our inheritance is greater. And still, the author goes on to continue, provides more reasons as to why we are to praise. We see in verses 7 and 8, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. I think this verse actually calls us to look at the very nature of the Lord and his commands. We, see, we know that the Lord is not just holy. The Lord is not just holy, holy. But the Lord is holy, holy, holy. And there's nothing else like him. That is a specific label for God and for God alone. Three times holy is our God and nothing is like him. And these are essential attributes to who God is. And I tell you this to say that it is actually out of God's nature to work in a way, in any other way. He cannot do wrong. It is impossible to do us wrong. All of his decrees, acts, deeds are the essence of truth and justice. And if this is the case, and it is, then we must look at the commands and the law of God as he does, not as we do. That the law is just, that the law is trustworthy, that the law is upright. Meaning that all of his laws are not useless, they're not just made on the whim, and they're not arbitrary, but they're genuine, genuinely beneficial for his people. He's a gracious lawgiver, and all of his laws are to be obeyed by his people. And to, to kind of look at, the, at verse 8 there, it says his precepts are established forever and ever. And what this tells us is that God does not change. He doesn't change his mind. He's not moved by the circumstances of the hour. He's not surprised by anything because he's decreed all things. He does not forget. He does not learn. And he does not change. And what I'm getting to is that truly God is immutable, faithful, and upright in all that he does. He is totally other than his creation. And still... The author gives us even more reasons to praise God. We look at verse 9. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. God sent redemption to Israel in the Old Testament. We know of this. Bringing them out of their slavery. And he was faithful to his covenant with them. And he provided them their inheritance despite of how fickle they were and how cold their hearts were at times towards God. And as we stand today, we can say, that con we can say with confidence that God has not only sent a, de a, a deliverance, he's not only sent a redeemer, but he's he sent complete redemption. We too used to be in bondage. 
So aligning yourselves with Israel and Egypt, we too were in bondage. We were spiritually dead, wicked, vile, rebellious, helpless slaves, stuck in our sin with no help. And like Moses, Jesus Christ was not only sent to deliver us from our slavery to sin, but he also provides the actual deliverance. Christ truly and completely redeems his people. And Christ comes, he lives the sinless life that we could not live. He willingly goes to a cross because he loves his children. And he hangs upon that cross with nail-pierced hands and feet, suffocating to his death until his lungs collapse. He takes upon himself the weight of the sins of his people. He dies the death that everyone in this room deserves. And he dies in our place for our sin to satisfy the wrath of God. So that God's elect would have deliverance from their slavery to sin. And that they would not be held to pay their own punishment through eternal hellfire. And if there's anyone in this room tonight that has not believed the gospel by faith, I ask that you would and that you would repent. And for those of us who, who have believed this gospel and have repented of our sins, do we not have a plethora of reasons to, get, to give God praise for that. If God's righteousness endures forever, if his precepts are trustworthy and upright, and if they are established forever, and if he remembers his covenant and he is, that he is commanded forever, and then what this means for us is that the immutable character of God, the fact that he is unchanging is our greatest cause for praise behind the cross, and here's why. We know that once we are in Christ, we will persevere through faith up until death. And we will not lose our salvation. When we are justified and made righteous through the works of Christ, we will not lose our legal status with God. So when we die and we're, when we're facing God, we can have certainty, certainty that God will not change his mind. God could have just given us Christ to free us from our sin and let us be. And that would still would have been a gracious act, but he didn't stop there. The act of Christ and the immutability of God seals us into his kingdom as his children. And as we take all of this in, the author uses all of these reasons to push home to verse 10. Verse 10 reads that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have a good understanding, and his praise endures forever. And so the author, as we go through this, and as he's writing this, he chains all of these reasons together to push us to the end so that we would have a reverent fear of the Lord. We see the mighty hand of the Lord both then and, and now. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in our present day as we live our lives. We know that his righteousness endures forever. We remember his works. We see that he is a gracious and merciful Lord. We remember his provision. We know that he is holy, that he is just, and that he is upright. And we know that he has sent redemption to his people. And knowing these together gives us reason and leads us into wisdom. Because understanding these should give us that reverent fear. We take all these, these truths and we ponder on them. We chew on them. They make us want to obey our Lord, and they, and they give us joy in doing it. They bring us to have a reverent fear of the Lord, 
right, and, and, and this understanding actually brings us right back to where we started in the first verse. To have a praise of the Lord, but a wholehearted praise of the Lord. So I actually, I know this was short, but I actually have two um, points of application for you, and then we'll go ahead and close. My first point is to just say to, to praise your God. We have so much reason to praise our God. Um, when we look back through the text and we see who he is, when we see what he has done for us and for you, when we sing in just a few minutes, offer to God a genuine, heartfelt praise. I know that many of us in this church are actually have been going through intense suffering. And so for, for many of you that are at the point of almost saying, man, what's the point? I ask that you would continue to pray. And I, maybe some of you can't worship because of, you can't worship with a whole heart because of what's going on. You say, I, you know, like, I get what you're saying, I just heard all this, that makes sense, but I don't feel it in here. You can't, and it's, it's at a point where I can't just change it. So if, if this is the case, I ask that you would just pray for heart change. Pray for heart change and renewal and joy to have praise to the Lord and if it doesn't come, continue to pray until it does. And for my second point, fear your God and continue to grow in wisdom. View your God how he should be viewed. See his holiness. See his justice. See his grace and his compassion through these scriptures. Remember his works. Praise him in private. Praise Him in public. Praise Him in corporate worship as we sing. And fear Him. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this time to come up here and go through these words with You. I ask that these would be a blessing to us. And I ask that this would ultimately give glory to You. I thank you for this church and the people that are here. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sin. We know that this is our redemption. What a gracious act that is. And I ask that in light of all these truths that we have read tonight, that we would give you a wholehearted praise. Amen.